0: Good morning, church. My name is Mick. I'm one of the apprentices here. And it's such a joy for me to be serving in this capacity this morning. I grew up just about a mile and a half from here and I have a deep love for this town and for its people. So thank you for the opportunity and your continued support. And I guess even though it's technically over, I can say Merry Christmas. Hope you all had a nice holiday, and it's actually in the spirit of Christmas that I kind of want to start things this morning by mentioning one of my favorite Christmas stories that you're all probably more or less familiar with. That's the story of the Grinch. You'll think back to the Grinch, and what he was trying to accomplish, what he was trying to do was go down into Whoville and destroy wreck, wreak havoc upon Christmas for the Who's down below. He wanted to ruin everything for them. But you'll recall something interesting happened on Christmas morning. Despite having stolen all of their food, all of their gifts, all of their decorations, the Grinch went out from his cave on Mount Crumpet expecting to see the Who's in great distress, but he didn't. He heard them singing. Despite all of the things that he had done, he was surprised to see that they were nonetheless joyful. He was completely shocked by what he was witnessing. Perhaps you can relate. Christmas is prime for this sort of thing. You've been dropping hints all year for that one gift, that one special thing that you really wanted, and as though you'd been talking to a fire hydrant the last 364 days of the year, the gift that you wanted was nowhere in sight. Young people, perhaps you can relate to this more than most as you gather around the Christmas tree and open up another pack of socks. I promise the day is coming when you'll appreciate that gift, I promise. But when we find ourselves in these types of scenarios, we find ourselves very much in the way of the Grinch, surprised, expecting one thing, so much so that the possibility of even entertaining anything contrary thereto never crosses our mind, and getting something very different, getting something else. Now... When we're talking about headphones and socks and Baby Yoda dolls and whatever else is and in these days, such considerations seem a bit trivial, a little meaningless in the grand scheme of things. That's the whole point of the Grinch too, isn't it? That Christmas isn't about all of these material trappings. The significance of this time of year goes much deeper. But what if the stakes were a bit Higher. What if the disappointment, the shock, the surprise was not waking up to another pack of socks, not looking around wondering where the new iPhone is, but pertained to matters of eternity, pertained to matters of your soul? What if the shocking surprise was expecting to one day die and go to heaven but instead coming to the end and realizing that you'll spend eternity in hell. The verdict, final. Your appeals, meaningless. And in that moment, there's nothing you can do to change it such as the sobering scene we're given in this morning's passage. If you have your copies of God's word, I'd encourage you to open them up to Matthew chapter seven. This morning we'll be looking at verses 21 through 29. Follow along with me. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven A passage like this ought to cause us to straighten up in our seats a little bit this morning. It's not among the texts that we get excited to turn to in our Bibles. Dare I say it's one of those texts that we just wish weren't in there. I mean, I don't want to think about people going to hell. And yet, this is how the Lord Jesus chose to conclude his most famous and substantive sermon His conclusion here more or less amounts to a warning. Don't be surprised. Don't be somebody who thinks that they're on their way to heaven, but in reality, ends up in hell. Jesus says that this is going to be the sad, grim surprise for many. Men, women, old people, young people, religious people. Many, the same many he mentioned to us back in verse 13, the many that are on the broad road that leads to destruction. And Jesus isn't talking about staunch atheists here. That's easy for us. It's easy for us to pallet the idea of somebody who completely rejects Jesus Christ and all the truth that we find in the word of God to understand that there is coming a day of reckoning for those people, But that's not who Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about people who have made a profession of faith. People who did magnificent things in the name of Jesus. And yet in the end, died and went to hell. And so if you're sitting here this morning thinking that this isn't something that you need to hear, you may be among those who are most in need to hear it. You don't want to be surprised on the day of judgment. Our Lord here is warning us against the danger of self-deception. He describes the self-deceived in two ways. First, in verse 21, he describes the self-deceived as a professor. That is a professor of faith. People who claim to believe. People who said, Lord, Lord. People who paid lip service to God. This probably isn't a hard thing for us to come to terms with since most people in the world, most people even that we interact with on a day to day basis are people that claim to believe, at least in a superficial way, in God. They may even claim to be Christians. We've all encountered people like this. Jesus reminds us here that just because someone says they're a Christian, just because someone has a belief in God doesn't mean that they will enter the kingdom of heaven. I think that's obvious to most of us, but Jesus sort of throws a wrench into things here. He goes on to describe the surprised, the self-deceived, as people who not only say, Lord, Lord, but as people who also do a lot of stuff. And this is the second way he describes them. He says, on that day, on what day? Clearly, Jesus is talking about the day of judgment, the great and terrible day of the Lord. The end of all things. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? That sounds like pretty good stuff. Pretty impressive stuff, really, so... Jesus again is describing these people as people who are in fact doing things. They're not necessarily idle. And notice three times here in this one verse how they're described as doing things. In my name, in my name, in my name. They did all of their works in the name of Jesus and yet were condemned. They were surprised, and you don't want to be surprised on the day of judgment. You know who comes to mind here is Judas. Judas, one of the 12, personally instructed by the Lord Jesus, did ministry alongside Jesus, saw Jesus perform miracles, performed miracles himself, Matthew 10.1 says, And he called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. Judas would have been included in that. And yet, he died. And Acts 1.25 tells us that he went to his own place. Is this not gripping to consider that someone could be so close, could name Jesus, could appear to be doing all of the right things, could perform miracles, and yet at the last be told, depart from me, I never knew you, and to spend eternity, to spend forever in hell. Friends, this is not something that we want to be surprised about. But this is tough, isn't it? Because the things that are happening here, the things Jesus is talking about in our passage, the things that these people are doing, they look so genuine. And yet they aren't. We know this must be the case because these words and these deeds, despite the fact that they look genuine, are condemned. By Jesus they aren't actually doing the will of the father what does Jesus say to these folks he says only the one who does the will of my father will enter the kingdom of heaven that's the wrench that's thrown into our gears this morning Jesus describes the very things that we would expect to be the will of the father and he says that ain't it So, what then is the will of the Father? What is Jesus talking about here? What do I need to do? What can I do? How can I come to the day of judgment and not be surprised? I think we're given some insight into this in the next section. Look with me at verses 24 to 27. Jesus continues. and it fell, and great was the fall of it." Jesus tells a story here, a parable. He gives us an illustration to drive home the point of his conclusion. It's a progression and a culmination of his teaching meant to depict the solemn importance of everything that he set up to this point. We'll get to that, but we've got something to figure out first. How can I come to the day of judgment and not be surprised? What is the will of the Father here? Notice what Jesus says. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them, who hears and does what? These words of mine. That's the will of the Father. Friends, you won't be surprised on the day of judgment if you follow the words of Jesus, the words of Jesus. We can take this to mean, of course, all that Jesus said in the immediate context, the Sermon on the Mount, which comprises Matthew chapters five through seven, but if we're thinking rightly about the words of Jesus here, we can't limit it simply to the Sermon on the Mount, but rather must look to follow the entire body of teaching that Jesus has given to us. Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. He said in John 15, 14, you are my friends if you do what I command you. Charles Spurgeon said, our king receives not into his kingdom those whose religion lies in words and ceremonies, but only those whose lives display the obedience of true discipleship. You won't be surprised on the day of judgment if you follow the words of Jesus. But if you're like me at this point, perhaps there's still this nagging in the back of your head. Maybe you're still struggling, still stuck on the folks back in verses 21 and 22. Weren't they doing the things that Jesus commanded? We looked in Matthew 10, just a few chapters later, and see that Jesus sent these people out to be doing these very things. Weren't they doing the words of Jesus? It looked that way, didn't it? But again, the judgment that was rendered to them was indicative that they weren't following the words of Jesus at all. And that's why, friends, this warning is so important for us. Think back to the Pharisees as well, the antagonists during the ministry of Jesus. Everyone thought that they had it all together, that they were on the fast track to heaven. When Jesus was teaching and he looked at the people and he said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. They got scared. They couldn't be more righteous than the Pharisees. These are the guys that had it all together. Just look at them. And yet we know that Jesus spent a great deal of his ministry correcting and rebuking them. In Mark 7, he said to them, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. He called them hypocrites, whitewashed tombs, looking beautiful on the outside but full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. They looked good on the outside, but they were spiritually dead. There was no true and genuine righteousness about them. Paul describes people like this in 2 Timothy 3. Verse 5, he says that such people have the appearance of godliness, but they deny its power. And what he's really saying there is that they did all kinds of godly looking stuff and yet weren't actually godly at all. So where do we fit into all of this? Where do you fit into all of this? Does your life have the appearance of godliness? Do you name the name of Jesus? Are you engaged in good deeds that you kind of superficially baptize in the name of the Christianity, in the name of the Savior, and yet, in reality, these things don't necessarily really have anything to do with the actual words of Jesus? Or are you really following his words? I don't think any of us would be so brazen as to come out and say we're resting and trusting in all of the stuff we're doing. But we might be just like the people in this passage, at least in a practical sense. You see, it's really easy especially this time of year, to get all caught up in all of the stuff that we're doing, and we inadvertently just look at our lives as checking a series of boxes, little marks to appease our consciences, telling us we're all good, deterring us from taking any real spiritual inventory. We might be doing a lot of stuff that looks good, but we aren't necessarily really following the words of Jesus and doing the will of the Father. The people Jesus describes here are those who didn't follow his words. They had no real righteousness despite looking every bit apart. Many of these people, I believe, will be genuinely surprised on Judgment Day. That's the real sobering part of this passage. There's gonna be a lot of people on that day, many, Jesus says, who we wouldn't necessarily describe as being particularly sinister. And yet they'll be condemned, having been completely blind to the fact that despite all of this stuff that they were doing, despite all of these boxes that seemed to be checked, they weren't actually following the words of of Jesus, they'll be surprised. But friends, you don't have to be surprised on the day of judgment if you follow the words of Jesus. What does this look like in our lives? Well, the context here demands that our immediate attention be given to the Sermon on the Mount. And so we can say that it looks like the Beatitudes which is what Jesus uses to open up his sermon back in Matthew chapter 5, verses one through 12. It looks like being poor in spirit. It looks like mourning over our sin. It looks like meekness and hungering and thirsting after righteousness. It looks like being merciful, pure in heart. It looks like being a peacemaker. Ultimately, it looks like Jesus. As has been said, any place in our lives that we don't look like Jesus, we need to change. Friends, this obedience is not formulaic, as in I do all this stuff, I check all these boxes, and I get heaven. Rather, it describes a disposition of the heart, a disposition that can only be wrought in someone by a work of the Spirit of God. You can't earn it, but you can ask for it. You can ask for it right now. You can go to Jesus, humble, mourning over your sin, seeking righteousness, hungering for it. That's low-hanging fruit. You just have to want it, and Jesus said in John six thirty-seven that whoever comes to me, I will never cast away. So Jesus closes this sermon with a story about two guys. A guy who builds his house on a rock and a guy who builds his house on some sand. One wise and one foolish. We don't have to think too hard to discern which one is which, do we? Nobody in their right mind would set out and take all the precautions, all the planning, all the materials, and then build their house on sand it doesn't take a rocket surgeon to figure this one out this guy is a fool nobody would ever do that and yet jesus says that's what it's like to hear these words of mine and not do them notice the house falls and great is the fall of it The comparison here is between one who hears the words of Jesus and does them, the wise man, and one who hears the words of Jesus and does not do them, the foolish man. This means, friends, that following the words of Jesus can't be like all of our failed New Year's resolutions, which really relates to this text a lot when you stop and think about just what a New Year's resolution is. A New Year's resolution is basically something that we recognize in our lives that needs to change, something that we ought to be doing that we haven't made the commitment to actually do yet. Doing the words of Jesus can't be like that because, let's be honest, failed New Year's resolutions are legion. If you don't believe me, just go into the gym at the turn of the calendar. Notice how many people are in there. And then, go back in May and see how many people are still in there. I can assure you, there won't be as many. We have to be different when it comes to following the words of Jesus. We have to do them now. (laughs) Don't wait to the new year. It's not enough to simply hear his words. It's not enough to know them. We have to do them. I'm reminded of the great 20th century preacher Leonard Ravenhill asking, do you know what you have to do to go to hell? Nothing. Nothing. This section closes with some commentary by Matthew, verses 28 and 29. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. No man ever spoke like this man. The scribes would often fill their teachings with quotations from other authorities to give their words substance, but Jesus was an authority in and of himself. He astonished the people by what he said and how he said it. He captivated them. Are you captivated by the words of the Savior this morning? Are you astonished by these words? This is no mere man speaking. These two verses press upon us the importance of this warning as it communicates Jesus' authority. And as that authority is communicated to us, it directs our attention right back to where we started. Not everyone who says to me. To me. The same one giving this warning, the one with the authority, is the one who is actually going to be doing the judging on that day. Jesus is not here engaging in speculation. This isn't a debate on eschatology. It's not an exercise in philosophy. This is going to happen. It's certain. And he is going to be the one rendering the judgment. Paul tells us that God hath appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And he has given assurance unto all by raising him from the dead. There is coming a day, friends, that is going to happen. There is coming a day in which every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This day is coming and is coming quickly. Don't be surprised. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for your word. We're thankful for its sufficiency. We're thankful for its authority. We're thankful that in your mercy you've given us this warning. I pray that your spirit would be at work within us even now enabling us to follow the words of Jesus, to want to follow the words of Jesus. Amen. Friends, if you'd like to stand with me please as we respond in song together.